So we turn the corner now as we take a look at Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 20. I'm kind of turning the corner into something that I'm not entirely certain is going to be um, really all that joyous, but here we go nonetheless. It's the text we have in front of us. Um, I think that there's a great deal of stuff here that's going to be wonderful, and I have just enough time, I think, to probably get through it, perhaps not. Um, we're going to look at verses 6 through 20, and I'm going to get as far as verse 14. Your challenge is to take the rest of the chapter this week and just work out through what it is we've talked about this morning throughout the rest of the week. So um, if you could all just stand as I read the text of Scripture and we go into the message. Picking up in verse 6, we, we hear this. Shall not all these that take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified or you have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam of the wood from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker thrusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to the silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Open our hearts and minds, Lord, this morning as we seek your face to understand what we have before us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Really getting kind of tired of titles. (laughs) I got to have a title from Alyssa. I got to have a title from Alyssa by Thursday. And it never works out um, because I'm I'm not inventive. I I, I waste all my energy on other things. (laughs) So I came up with a title, The Glory of God. And the more I studied, the more I went over these notes yesterday and again this morning. The Glory of God turns back into the sovereignty of God part two. But really, it's the glory of God because it's only seen in the sovereignty of God. Now that I've run around in circles and, you know, made everybody ask why you're talking about titles, 
It's called the glory of God this morning, but we are going to be looking at really his glory and his sovereignty because our focus on the truth of God's sovereignty as we look at this particular passage, which is not a comfortable passage, we will never fail to see his glory in the midst of the world if we understand his sovereignty over the affairs of humanity. And I think that's important for us. Because last time we were in Habakkuk, as you remember, we saw a prophet who was teetering on the edge. He was wavering in faith, wasn't he? He said, I'm going to stand here and see how I'm going to respond to what it is the Lord says. In the midst of the mess that Israel had found herself in, he wasn't entirely certain that he was going to be able to handle the answer that God gave him. And his faith was just right there on the edge. And what did we learn? We learned that the Lord cares deeply about the faith of his people. So he took the time before he unpacks this to teach Habakkuk that the righteous live by faith. They live by his faith. Habakkuk needed that lesson in order to be able to stand in what would be a very clear delay in God's deliverance of his people. In fact, he was on the front end of a very rough go of it for the people of Israel. But he needed that encouragement in what is going to be a clear delay in God's deliverance, which means there's going to be a rough road and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be problems as you move ahead. But while there may be a delay in God's deliverance, we need to understand it It most assuredly will happen. It's a guarantee as the sun comes up in the morning and goes down at night, God's deliverance will happen. The church's duty in the midst of that, Habakkuk's duty in the midst of that, is to always be faithfully present within whatever situation you find yourself in. If you're tired of hearing that yet, good. I want it in your brains. We are to be faithfully present within the situation that God puts us in, to do the absolute best that we can for the glory of God. The story of God we need to understand as we take a look here and as we should always see. His story is about His glory. Not about my business, not about my well-being. His story is about His glory. The glory of God is seen ultimately where? In the person, the ministry, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is ultimately how we see the glory of God manifested in this world. God incarnate. That's where it is unpacked and unfolded for us. Uh, during an InterVarsity Fellowship Conference all the way back in 1949, there's a couple of you here that were around then, but all the way back in 1949, Martin Lloyd-Jones brought a message to a very unsettled and a very confused group of young people. Just a few short years removed from the horrors of World War II and the unbelievable evil that we saw coming out of Germany, the question abounded during this conference of, Where is God in all of this? It weighed very heavily on everybody's mind. They were very concerned. Habakkuk could ask himself. And in fact, I would surmise he probably did ask himself the exact same question as he saw Babylon headed over the hill and coming to take over and destroy his nation. Where is God in all of this? But as we talked a few weeks ago, what did we learn? We learned about the righteous living by Faith, the righteous living by faith. We have to discuss the undercurrent of that way of living. How do we do that? How do we live by faith in the midst of a situation that tests our faith to the point where we're not sure we can make it? You see, because the sovereignty, the providence of God, the glory of God in the affairs of all humanity is what actually puts our feet on solid ground. 
if we can really understand that God is in control, even in the bad things, no matter what happens, we can stand on solid ground. Jones made three points. That's why it took me a long time to get through high school. Three points. Great, my accountant's here. This is good. That's why he does my taxes. I don't want to go to prison. He made three points. The first point he made is this. Number one, that there is no answer to the problem of history and no explanation of the state of all the world's affairs apart from the sovereignty of God. That's the first thing. There is no explanation for history. No explanation for history. And the problem that we have, no explanation for the state of world affairs apart from the sovereignty of God. That has to be our framework as Christian people. The second thing he said was that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is necessary for the church. We have to know the sovereignty of God. It will rid Christian people of the disease of pessimism as they face the future. And that's some of the Kool-Aid that the church itself has drunk. We have become as cynical, sarcastic, and as pessimistic as the world. We just put a bunch of flowery words to it and make ourselves sound sanctified. This is why we need to understand God's sovereignty and his glory. And then number three, the point he made was an understanding of divine sovereignty is necessary for the living out of the true Christian life. We can be as settled in prison, just like the Apostle Paul, as we can be at home with a T-bone steak for dinner if we understand the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. So when we take a look at a passage like this in Habakkuk chapter 2, which is a rough passage, if we're honest, This is not a pleasant thing that God is calling down upon Babylon. When we look at a passage like this, or anyone like it for that matter, in the Old Testament or the New, we have to start with God. We have to start with God and not with man. I can't start here. I have to start there. Because if we start here with man and try to make sense of life by fitting God into what it is we are seeing, we will end up in the wrong place every single time with a confused and far too often deeply bitter attitude about people and life itself. If you don't believe me, watch the news for five minutes. It's where we end up. It's human nature. And honestly, it's exactly what the enemy of our souls wants. It's exactly what he wants. And sadly, it is exactly what grieves the heart of God. It's what grieves the heart of God. We have to understand that. I want to remind us all that peace is found in Christ by grace through faith. And at that moment, those moments, the moment, whatever it is for you, when the world is pressing in, when things are completely falling apart for you, much like they are for Habakkuk here, the righteous live by We have to learn to be comfortable with the dynamic tension of unanswered questions. That's why I brought last time I was teaching here, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord. We aren't meant to know everything. So we have to learn to live with that dynamic tension. We know what we need to, but we aren't meant to know everything. 
Some passages of scripture are very hard for us to digest. This here being one of them, if we take a look at the judgment that's being called down on Babylon. Habakkuk has been encouraged by God up to this point that the righteous have, living out, have to live out a faith-driven life. He's challenged by God to trust God in the midst of a situation of not understanding that situation, not really knowing exactly what God's going to do in the long run, but knowing that God will take care of things. He doesn't really even have all the answers. God's going to unpack for him what's going to happen in Babylon, but he doesn't get all the answers he wants. And when I took a look at this particular passage, I think it's framed out around two verses, verses 14 and verses 20. If you take a look at that in chapter 2, verse 4, 14, and 20, to me, are the three key verses in this chapter. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Those are challenges for us. Within the sovereign plan of God, we are encouraged with a promise and a command. A promise and a command. The world will know who I am. Make no mistake about it. The world will know who I am. That's the promise. The command is, I am in control all the time, even if it doesn't look like I'm in control. I am in control. Everybody makes their idols. They make them talk to them. They're deluded. They do all kinds of stupid things. I am in my holy temple. Let the whole earth be in silence before me. Why? Because I am in control. And this is what we have to know and understand about his sovereignty when we are deeply unsettled. If we cannot rest in that knowledge, if we cannot understand that, that in the middle of the chaos of life, wherever this finds you, whatever you are struggling with today, if you cannot get a hold of the sovereignty of God, all of the changes that are happening around us, as well as the unknown that is going on, that in the midst of that, God is sovereign over history. We will always be unsettled. And what we find here in Habakkuk, what he is going to unpack for us, is not only that he is sovereign over history, but that whether we see it or not right now, every single individual will be held accountable for the things that they do and the things that they do not do in this world. And that includes me, and that includes you. Not just those who don't know Jesus, because Peter makes it very clear, we don't escape. Judgment begins where? Here. If that doesn't unsettle you, it should. Every single thing that happens will be brought to bear before the Lord. This is why it is important for us to be focused upward towards God. Upward and then outward. Upward and then outward towards the world. Why? Because the world is absolutely lost and confused. They don't even know what it means to be human. In fact, we struggle with trying to understand that sometimes ourselves. The mess itself is not going to make sense any other way unless we can understand the glory of God in the midst of his sovereignty. Our role as the church in living out the cruciform life will never be a stable one if we forget that in it all, God is. When you are absolutely in the darkest place that you can be in, if you remember nothing else, Hold on to those two words. God is. And that's all we need. God is. How this world functions should never determine or define how it is we respond. Ever. 
We are driven to be new creation people, living a life centered on Jesus Christ of Nazareth because of what he has done. He is the Messiah King. Why do we have to live that way? Because God is in his holy temple. And guess what? At his right hand sits the Redeemer of all humanity and all mankind, interceding on behalf of those who call him theirs. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for eternity. We can rest in that and we can know that. Divine justice will come. It's what we learn here in Habakkuk. But don't let the delay make you bitter. That's, I think, the challenge. Don't let it make you bitter. Shall not all those who take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, now the diatribe against Babylon begins. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Letting Babylon know your day's coming. Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Creation itself is going to declare before God the abuses that Babylon has brought. Not just the people. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Have a nice day. Three times here Habakkuk records woe to him. Woe to him. In other words, Babylon best take heed. Babylon best take heed. Why? Because justice and judgment is coming. Although it is delayed, it will be meted out on those who have abused others. Who have overstepped their bounds according to the laws of God. Babylon is being mocked here by the king of the universe. You think you're all that? (laughs) You're not. You're not heaping up what is not their own, making yourself fat and rich at the expense of others. See, this isn't a political issue. It's a human issue. It's a biblical issue. Plundering and abusing people. Plundering and abusing people beyond what God has commanded you to do. We need to remember verse 8 here and remind us that nothing escapes God's notice. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Nothing escapes God's notice. And let's remember what the Apostle Paul reminded the Galatian church. This is not a one-off thing with Babylon. Paul said to the church in Galatia, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing. But you see, Paul has a great deal of wisdom and he wants to bring balance here. As he speaks to the church, he takes it one step further that in the midst of all of this broken world, because of our faith in Christ, because we have been made right before God, that's his grace poured out upon us through faith, we ought to behave differently than the world. Not be cynical and sarcastic and bitter and 
and, you know, who cares about what's happening? I can't even deal with it anymore. No. Paul says this, and this is an encouragement to us all. Let us not grow weary of doing good. How many times do you just want to say, I'm done? I'm sick and tired of the world. I love my job. It's the people I hate. I mean, who says that? I hear it a lot. I don't want to leave my house today. I don't want to adult. If I have to put pants on today, I'm not, I'm not in the mood for it. Paul says, no, no. Do not be wearied in doing good. Why? For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's our purpose and our mission. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Now, that'd be cute if we stopped there, because then we could define it for ourselves. But he doesn't let us off the hook. Because the everyone there isn't all your friends in church. He makes that clear with what he finishes with. And especially those who are of the household of God. In other words, every human being you encounter in this world... The most irritating nuisance in the world. Do good. As best as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. Why? Because God's goodness is seen through his people into this world. And I am not going to finish on time. Woe to him, it says in 2.9, who gets evil gain for his house. Not that gain is wrong in and of itself. Let's remember that. Or that having and being wealthy is bad. It's not. It's what we do with it. It's always a question of how our wealth has been obtained. Was it and is it a just way in which we earn our money? Are we using it correctly? You see, when it comes to our wallets, when it comes to our wallets and our bank accounts, are we operating justly? That's not only in our tithes, but that's in how we obtain what we earn and how we buy things, and how we bless others. Are we using what God blesses us with to do others? You see, taking one's cut, as it were, is in view here. Getting my fair share. Babylon's being told on the backs of others, you have made your house safe. On the backs of others, you've been unjust. Do you think these things have gone unnoticed by the God of the universe? No. You see, most especially when the powerful and the wealthy continue to gain at the expense of the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and the orphan. And I'm going to say it again. Read your Bibles. This ain't a political thing. This is a human thing. It's a biblical thing. If you want to politicize it, go ahead. We are held to account based upon how we deal with the widow's the orphans, and the fatherless among us. Babylon was abusive. And on the backs of people, they built their kingdom. They were excessively brutal in their conquering of nations, in their building of kingdoms. Now in God's sovereign plan, their rule was an ordained rule. So that's why Habakkuk is shaking his face. Where would you be? I know I wouldn't be too keen on this whole thing. Babylon is not exactly who I would want. We learned that in chapter 1. But yet, nonetheless, in God's sovereign plan, Babylon is the one who is going to be doing these things. But as we see in Habakkuk, it was to be, in part, how God punished his own people for their rebellion. 
another hard thing for Habakkuk to swallow. See, but here's the problem. It's always the case throughout history. Babylon overstepped. They abused. They became very brutal and arrogant in their thinking. Much like so many others down through history, they felt that it was all about them, that they were doing all this, that they were the masters of their own destiny. I'm in control of it all. I can do whatever I want. God is sovereign over all, isn't he? He don't share his glory with anybody. Babylon will be held to account. Everyone is accountable to him for their actions. This is absolutely no different today. Absolutely no different today. Every nation and every system and every kingdom and people are in power because of God's sovereign design. We're saying today that he will bring back the head of our enemy. Now, I don't glorify in that, but the point that's being made in that is that God will call everybody to account. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, Paul tells us, for there's no authority where except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, if that unsettles you, good. It unsettles me. Because that means it doesn't matter who's in charge. I have to be the best citizen I can within the rules that are being made and the laws that are being made as long as they don't violate God's law. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor is supreme or the governor is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put the silence, the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So for those of you who don't like the fact that we, we don't like who might be in office at this particular cycle, or we don't like the person who's in office the next particular cycle, understand who was the emperor when Paul wrote that and when Peter wrote that. Their judge, jury, and executioner, his name was Nero. One of the most evil men to ever walk the face of planet Earth. And what are we being told? Honor the emperor. Now, what got them killed is every rule that defied the rules of God, they said, we can't do that. We will be the best citizens we can be. We will do what we're supposed to do. But this rule here, no, can't do it. That violates God's law. If that costs me my life, so be it. But we will be the best citizens we can be. So long as it doesn't violate our king's law. This is why the people of God and the church are to be different. To focus on being kingdom people in the world by living that cruciform, cross-centered life in this world and doing so in the midst of wherever God has set you down. Being faithfully present within. Faithfully present within. Look around here. Each and every one of you has been placed where you have been placed in order to shine the light of Christ into a dark world. If we understand the sovereignty of God, every one of you, where you are, have been placed shine the light of Christ into a dark world. Why? Because doing so draws the line in the sand when it comes, especially to this text, how we define and how we value human life. All human life. God will not allow abuse to occur. How we treat one another and how we treat our enemies 
how we become a voice for any and all who have no voice. The church's responsibility in this world is not to get the right person in power. The responsibility of the church in the world is to speak out for justice, to speak for mercy, to speak out for love, regardless of who is in power. Because the best of men are men at best. So if you find yourself wondering if the credibility of the gospel and the character of your king is being called into question because of the things you're saying and doing, take a breath and ask yourself, should I be? Because we cannot allow the credibility of the gospel and the character of our king to be called into question by the world. If we do that, we have no voice in the world to say anything. So we have to check ourselves. We have to check ourselves. If we keep our focus on Jesus, that's the, that's the key. Habakkuk is being challenged. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I am your king. I am your Lord. I am in the temple. If we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, not on the broken and failing systems of this world, guess what? It keeps us from being bitter. bitter. doesn't mean we're, we're not grieved and upset, but it keeps us from being bitter. It keeps us from being cynical. It keeps us from being sarcastic and critical and pessimistic. All of these things. It keeps us from doing those things. Why? Because we have the answer. Because God's sovereignty over this world is sure. It's fixed. See, verse 14, and I close with this. I have to close with this, otherwise we're never going to get home for lunch. Verse 14 opens with a wonderful window to the world. When Habakkuk and we are encouraged, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just let that sink in. I mean, I could have just told you that and said, amen, let's go home and just meditate on that. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Stupid question. How much of the sea does the water cover? All of it. All of it. That's a beautiful picture. That while we are in the midst of what we are in right now, the promise of God is don't worry. My sovereign hand is on everything and my word, my knowledge, who I am will cover every stinking inch of my creation and universe. He lifts it up on to the timeline of history itself, not just Babylon. Babylon will be judged. But make no mistake, so won't the world, but in order that the world can be redeemed. So that in the end, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the world and cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the worship team come up. I leave you with this last thought by David Baker. In understanding that the secret things belong to God. And then we'll go into prayer in one last song. David Baker talks about verse 14 and he says, The challenge for us is this. 
theoretical knowledge is not sufficient. Theoretical knowledge is not sufficient, but rather an intimate encounter with the covenant God results in ethical living. In other words, I can know everything, but if I don't know everything, I'm missing. And the beauty of this verse, he says, this verse raises the oracle, as I said, from the single reference to Babylon's defeat and places it on the level of eschatology that in the last days, God will move powerfully bringing his kingdom to all creation. I love that. That's a beautiful sentence. Because it doesn't matter what it looks like now. The promise of God and his sovereign will is that everything, everything will be covered by his kingdom. And we will see Jesus. Let's stand. Father, as we come before you this morning, I pray as we close in this last song that we would be reminded, every one of us, of the beauty of who you are. I I know. I know that we live in a rough time. I know, Father, that we live in a a day of confusion, uncertainty, bitterness, anger. I could go on and on and on. But I also know that your sovereign hand is over all of this. And it is all for your glory. This is your world. This is your world. You created it. You called it good. You redeemed it in Christ and you made it again once it, what it should be. What we see now, Lord, remind us is nothing more than the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, doing everything that he can to destroy what is good and what is right and what is just. Breaking your heart by using your very creation itself and your image bearers, human beings to do the work for him. Encourage us, though, Lord, that while that may be for a season, much like Habakkuk, help us to live by faith. Help us to know that in the end, we will see our Redeemer. Because as Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, I will see him standing here. And that's a promise that we have in our struggles, whatever they may be. Lord, remind us of that for Jesus' sake. Deep within my heart, I know you've won, I know you've overcome, and even in the dark.